Well, again, it is a great privilege of, of ours, my family, myself, to be here with you. We bring you greetings from Summit Woods Baptist Church in Lee Summit, Missouri. I know they are praying for uh, all of us this morning and our time together in God's Word, and uh, they're very encouraged that we could be here together with you, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to come and be a part of this fellowship. Uh, we've heard of this congregation a number of times and uh, the ministry that the Lord has here, and we're so very thankful for what God is doing through all of you. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know uh, Pastor Matt and, and Julie and their family. Spending time with them last night was really encouraging to us and our family. And so being able to fellowship with you, that is a, a great treasure and a rich treasure to us. And so we're, we're thankful for the opportunity. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where, we'll, where we will be spending our time together in the next number of uh, days. And I want to read the passage that we'll be looking at and we'll be studying together this morning. Look at chapter 10, beginning in verse 6, and follow as I read through verse 13. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that this time would be one in which we actually hear from you to the extent that your word is faithfully taught. We pray that we would respond as if it were your actual words. As we understand them, we pray that we would come face to face with you so that we would see our soul correctly, that we would see Christ supremely, that we would hate our sin, but we would love our Savior. We pray that you would use this time for your ultimate glory. Help us to enjoy fellowship together over the word and do what you alone can do in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, I would uh, never refer to myself as a his history buff. I'm not uh, as proficient in recalling and rehearsing all the explicit dates and names of most of what I read and I learn, but I am somebody who is intrigued by history. You might be as well. I'm in love with biographies of leaders. Perhaps I find myself... Because I find myself in a leadership position, I am intrigued by leadership biographies. I love seeing how leaders 
were, were born, the places where they were raised, what influenced their life in the beginning, how they professed and responded to and led through particular challenges in life. I love reading that kind of thing. If you were to come into my study at the church, you would see an entire uh, shelf space dedicated to presidential biographies. I love perusing those and reading them and learning from them. I love seeing their failures and their victories. I love looking at not just presidents of the past, but church leaders, and even love looking into business leaders, cultural leaders. That always intrigues me. Irrespective of the era and the time, I find myself uh, more and more interested in history. And rarely when I'm reading these biographies and these accounts of history, does my reading of history remain a mere rehearsal of the past. It becomes an evaluation of my own life. Do you find that to be true when you're reading a biography? You're not only rehearsing what happened in a person's life in the past, you start thinking about your own circumstances. Even though my leadership responsibilities never rise to the level of influence or cultural impact of those that I'm reading about, I'm reminded when I'm reading history or biography, what I'm reminded of is that these people are people. They're just people. Time moves on. And yet, it is fascinating that time and circumstances rarely change, do they? I don't think I'm alone in that intrigue. History is intriguing to so many of us because in the back of our minds is the understanding that dates change, but people are essentially the same. The human heart is the same today as it was in the past. What happened in the past is more than just intriguing for us. Perhaps it is a warning. Those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it, as we've often heard. Maybe it is a warning. Maybe studying the past is encouraging to you, and I think that is good. It should be. Maybe even a primary role of history, even biblical history, is to warn us and to encourage us, to motivate us to leave sin behind to motivate us to trust in God, to follow obediently the word of Christ. I think that is the Apostle Paul's appeal to us here when he rehearses biblical history. As we were talking about in the first session, we were going back into the history of Old Testament Israel to see what we might learn from that about our own soul. We're reading back into the history of the Corinthian church, a group of people who approached Christianity. They approached religion in such a way that they felt like they could continue to live in ways that were actually contrary to God's word and still be spiritually secure. And so Paul reaches back into Old Testament history, into the life of Israel, to remind the Corinthians and thus to remind us As you read these accounts, you should not just think about the past, but think about yourself. To warn your heart, perhaps to encourage your heart. Do you ever find yourself pursuing a form of Christianity that leaves you in your sin rather than overcoming your sin? That's the theme of this chapter is to take heed lest we fall. Listen to the past, examine ourselves in the present, lest we find ourselves falling to sin. 
That's the encouragement we find. It's the warning we find. The warning in verse 12, take heed. The encouragement in verse 31, do everything you do to the glory of God. So as we introduce this in the last session, we want to come now in this time and remind ourselves that this chapter is giving us five different examinations. Five different examinations so that we would not delude our hearts from true faith, but pursue the glory of God in truth. And we looked at the first one already in the first five verses. Don't trust in the signs of belief, meaning those external signs of religion like baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are to be sure signs of conversion. They're symbols of conversion. But you don't trust in the sign, you trust in the substance of which they point. But the Corinthians, likely, because they had been baptized into Christ, believed that their baptism was some kind of spiritual security to them. They participated in the Lord's Supper, and they viewed it in some kind of magical way, as if it were giving them some spiritual blanket of protection, despite their own continuing to live in open rebellion to God and in sin. Don't trust in the signs. Trust in the substance of Christ. Examine yourself. Are you going through the religious motions but still living in sin before the Lord? And you know that. You know whether you are or not. You know what you do in the secret places of your heart, your mind, your bedroom, your behavior. You know whether or not you are actually following the word of God or not. Listen. Don't trust in the signs of belief. Secondly, abandon the behaviors of unbelief. That's what we're going to look at today. Abandon the behaviors of unbelief. We'll move on in the sessions to come tonight and tomorrow night and Tuesday. Flee from all forms of idolatry. Keep your freedoms free from idolatry and live for the glory of God. But this morning we examine the second of these five examinations. Abandon the behaviors of unbelief. So what do we find here? What I want to point out to you are just two facets. Now walk with me through this. Two facets involved in overcoming the behaviors of unbelief. Two ways we're going to look at overcoming the behaviors of unbelief. And one is going to remind us to look back and one is going to make us look presently. What are these two facets involved in making sure we overcome the behaviors of unbelief and we're not blinded to them in the pursuit of personal freedom? First of all, we're going to find in verses 6 to 11, we need to rehearse the biblical examples of unbelief. Rehearse the biblical examples of unbelief. How are you going to know what unbelief looks like? How, how would you examine yourself and know exactly what it means to not really trust in the Lord? Well, Let's look at some examples of unbelief that the Bible points out, and we're going to put our life right next to them and begin to examine ourselves in light of those. So we're going to study. You're, you're going to need your both testaments this morning, all right? We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament doing exactly what the Apostle Paul wants us to do, and that is rehearse these biblical examples of unbelief so that we can rightly understand where our hearts are before the Lord. This is where Paul goes back into history with us, a very relatable history for any Christian to consider, because he's going back to look at Israel's history, 
Israel. They are highly relevant to us, not because we are some kind of spiritual Israel. We are not. We are the church. There is a distinct plan of God for people in this era, a unique people of God within redemptive history. That's who we are as the church. But we are the people of God in this stage of redemptive history where Israel was the external people of God in the era before us. So what they went through as God's chosen people is very informative for us as God's chosen people as we navigate through the present era of redemptive history. In this rehearsal of Israel's biographical history, Paul is going to pull up five specific events. You probably heard them. You could see him move and navigate through them. But we're going to look at five specific events, events that revealed the spiritual condition of most of the Israelites. If you remember, we ended just before uh, we came into this time of worship. We ended the last section by noting that all of Israel, 100% of the people of Israel had gone through the cloud. They were led by God through the cloud. So they would identify with God. He must be our God. We must be our people. He's leading us. They all went through the sea. All of them. 100% of them. All of them were delivered by God through the sea. They all ate the spiritual food. How many of them were sustained by the manna? All of them. They all had the same spiritual drink. They drank from the water that came from the rock. How many? All of them. But how many of them actually knew the favor and pleasure of God? Meaning this, out of the two million Israelites who came out of Egypt, how many of them actually had true saving faith that we know of? Likely only two. If we exempt Moses and Aaron, two, Caleb and Joshua, are the only men who came out of that original generation and made it into the land of promise. With most of Israel, God was not pleased, was he? So what was their life like? What should they have been examining that would be an example to us? Well, let's rehearse. Let's rehearse the biblical examples of unbelief for a moment in five different events. The first event, the first, is in verse 6. It is the temptation to evil desire. The temptation to evil desire. Desire. Look at verse 6 again. Now these things took place as examples for us. Referring to the specific historical examples from verses 1 to 5 that we talked about revealed a false confidence based on their participation in those external signs. It led them to overconfidence. So they're examples. The word examples in the Greek New Testament is the word tupos, meaning a type. It's where we get the English word type, a tupos. It's a mark, it's a pattern, it's an image. Some suggest that the idea in this idea is a, a handprint in the concrete, a handprint in the clay, as it were, a type, an image, an imprint, an outline, teeth marks left on the skin when someone bites. Now, some types in the Bible are a kind of formal literary type or what we would call a prophetic type. Adam was a type of Christ. Christ will fulfill what we, we saw in Adam, what we should have seen in Adam. 
Adam is viewed as a type of Christ, Romans 5, 14, etc. But this is not a prophetic type here. This is what I would simply call an exemplary type. This is just an example, an example to follow. Just like reading a biography of a great leader, pulling one of those off the shelf, opening it up, it's an example of what you shouldn't do, what you should do, how you could examine your life, how your life could be similar or different. It's not guaranteeing anything that will happen, simply saying here's what could happen if you follow them. So these are examples. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Friends, this is what misplaced trust will do to us. It will lead you away from desiring what fits with God's heart. It centralizes you on your own heart, and you crave what you want more than what God wants. So what is this referring to? That we might not desire evil as they did. What exactly is that referring to in Israel's history? Some suggest it's just a general statement, a general reference to a non-historical event, just the general desires that Israel had in their heart that were contrary to God. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think he's referring to a very specific event in biblical history, and I want you to look at it with me. If you will, turn back into the Old Testament in your Bible to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. As you read Israel's account, you normally find them delivered by God. They make their way a little further into the, into the wilderness. And what typically happens when they get a little further down away from redemptive events? What do they do? They complain. Oh, poor Israelites. Aren't you glad we've come so far? We see redemption and we're just always thankful. People of faith, we never really complain. Why do you think Paul picked these examples? They're so relevant for us, aren't they? Would you look at uh, verse 1 of Numbers 11? And the people complained. In the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now watch what happens next, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had what? A strong craving. I think you should note that verse, because this is what Paul is referring to. There was an evil desire that they had. And here he's referring to what Moses calls here a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Remember, the Lord provided supernaturally bread from heaven every single day. And all of them were sustained by that bread. 
And at some point, they look at that day after day and they say, this is terrible. This supernatural gift of God that comes every morning that keeps us alive and so that we don't die out here in the wilderness, we don't want any more of it. We wish we had the food that came free in Egypt. Time out. Free in Egypt? Do you remember what it cost you in Egypt? Do you remember how hard the labor was? Do you remember what Pharaoh was doing to you? Do you remember the enslavement? And you look back on that time as freedom? That's what we often call sin. Freedom. That's how the the unbelieving world often looks at us as in bondage to God. Not free. Sin looks freeing. We forget about the cost, don't we? That's exactly what's happening here. Here's an evil craving. Here is God has ordained for you marvelous supernatural supply in the wilderness. And you have an evil craving. Because you want something different than what God has ordained for you. You want something different than what he has provided. That's an evil Look at verse 18, chapter 11. Well, go back to verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 of the men of Israel, of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. And bring them to the tent of meeting, and you let them take their stand there with you, and I'll come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. They shall bear the burden of the people, that you not bear it alone. Verse 18, say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat. And you shall eat. And you shall, not just, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Look at verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, about two cubits above the ground. A cubit is about 18 inches. Two cubits would be double that. Can you imagine this? And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. And those who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava. Why is that significant? Do you have a note in your Bible of what that means, Kibroth Hatava? It is the graves of craving. The graves of craving. 
Because there they buried the people who had the craving. When Paul says that Israel was an example to us, that we might not desire evil as they desired. What desire is he talking about? It's this one. It's this one. They craved something beyond what God had ordained. They despised God's good, supernatural, gracious, sustaining provision, and they lusted for something else. They actually had disdain for what God had given them. And they wanted something different. They looked at God's provision and hated it. And they wanted they wanted something different. Something they thought would be more satisfying than what God had given. You ever find your heart similarly tempted to want something different than what God has ordained? I mean, just examine. Examine even the most recent frustration you have had. You have been frustrated with a certain circumstance. Anybody ever had COVID yet? For some, that's been just a mild cold. For others, that has been life-threatening, or perhaps it has taken life. You've been ill. You've had financial trouble. You look at your job. You look at your circumstances. You might look at your marriage. You look at your children. Your children look at their parents, and they, they're not satisfied. You look around you at what you have, and you see all that God has done in your life, and you start saying, but that's not what I want. It's not what I want, it's not the way I want it, it's not when I want it, it's not, not exactly what I'm looking for. Do you know what the Bible calls that? An evil craving. And that evil craving buried people in the wilderness in a grave called the grave of craving. Paul is saying, look, at your circumstances, Corinthians. He's reminding us, look at what you want that's contrary to God's provision. Maybe it's the adulterer who has convinced himself or herself that the illicit relationship is justified. That's what happens with sin. I want this. I deserve this. This is better than what I have. And so you begin to justify it. It's right, it's good, because it finally feels right that I have what I think I deserve. This is the way marriage should have been in the first place. I'm so glad I have this and not what God has given me. It's the contempt that you may have for a current employment because of how difficult it is, how unfair it might be, how poor it is. You begin to complain and assume that what you want is better than what you have. Time will tell, won't it? An evil craving, an evil desire is a desire for something different than what God has actually given you. It's looking at what he has given and seeing it and saying, that's not what I want. I don't know how you look at that and you say there's anything good in that kind of desire. There cannot be any good in that desire that wants something other than what God has ordained. That's a behavior that marks unbelief, an evil desire that despises what God has provided by longing for what God has not. That's one temptation. Does that mark you? Take heed. That is a step toward.
towards falling away from the living God. There is a second temptation described for us back in 1 Corinthians 10 in verse 7, and it is the temptation to idolatry. It certainly falls on the heels of this, but verse 7 marks another one. If we are not to desire the evil they desired, verse 7 says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it has been written, the people sat down and he goes on. Now this certainly strikes at the Corinthian problem. If you remember, the whole challenge in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians is that they're going to the idol temples to eat. Again, that was a social place of gathering. It would be like gathering at any kind of community center or hall for any kind of event, except in Corinthian culture, religion is baked into everything. So you don't just go to have a social event. At any social event, there are religious connotations to it. So how does the the Christian actually participate in those events that are surrounded by idolatry. Well, the Corinthians would say it doesn't matter. There isn't anything in an idol, so we can go and we can eat the meat and we can participate in the social event, and there's no spiritual impact on us. And Paul warns them here, don't be idolaters, as some of the Israelites were idolaters. Think back to our fathers, those who preceded us as the people of God. Don't be idolaters like they were. Now, I I want you to think about this carefully for a moment. I'm not sure how many Israelites in the past said, you know what, I like God, but I need a little idolatry to go with him. Have you ever had that thought? Is that how you approach idolatry? You think, oh, I love the Lord, but I need the Lord and a little bit of idolatry. I need a little idolatry to go along with my God. You probably don't think that way. In fact, you probably don't look at any of the things that God would call an idol of the heart and you look at them and say, that's, that's an idol. No, those desires that we have, those desires that we crave, we usually look at as something good. We don't look at it as idolatry because to call it idolatry, we would probably leave it alone. That's what happened with Israel, by the way. I think the specific occasion that is referred to here is found in Exodus chapter 32. Look back at that just for a moment, Exodus 32, because I want you to see something interesting about this passage. You know it well. You have read it a number of times. It is the incident with the golden calf. You remember Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law of God, and he delayed He didn't come down the mountain very soon. Verse 1 of chapter 32 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Now watch the language carefully here. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. You say, well, how could they say that? What has God already done? They knew who Yahweh God was, the great deliverer from Egypt. So now Moses doesn't come down and they want Aaron to make them gods. Now watch what they say about these gods very carefully. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And notice what he said about the calf. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. What are they saying? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? Now my version says, the Lord, and the Lord is spelled in all capital letters, meaning this is the divine name of God, Yahweh. You understand what Israel did. They did not fashion a calf, a golden calf, and call it another god. They fashioned a calf and said, this is Yahweh. This is the God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. This is Yahweh. We have to have something tangible to look at. I don't know where Moses is. He was the tangible figure that represented God to us. He's gone. He hasn't come down. We need something to look at. We can't trust in nothing. We need someone to lead us. Was it idolatry? It was a golden calf. Of course it's idolatry. Everybody can see that. Did they call it idolatry? They called it the worship of Yahweh. They didn't see it as idolatry. They didn't see it as idolatry at all. In fact, it says, verse 6, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I don't think it was horseshoes either. To play is to engage in immorality. To engage in sexual immorality. As if that would appease the God when you give yourself away in sexual pleasure for this God. Do you, do you understand what they have done? Moses doesn't come down. They construct a God and call it Yahweh and then engage in behavior that was completely contrary to Yahweh. And yet they did it as if it was worship to Yahweh. This is Paul going back to this example and saying, there is a temptation that you have in your religion to construct a kind of religion that allows you a theology to engage in immorality and still think that you are okay in your worship of God. That's what happens to every single pastor or leader who secretly develops a lifestyle of sin and adultery and yet preaches week in and week out the scriptures and yet engages in sinful habits. That's what's happening to you. If you are engaged in some kind of secret sin, secret unknown sin perhaps, that you keep hidden from everyone else and yet you come here week after week after week. You study the word, you sing the songs, you engage in Christian fellowship. You might be even in a discipleship group. Behind the scenes, you're looking at pornography. Perhaps you are engaging in some other kind of sexual pleasure outside of your marriage 
That's what's going on here. You've developed a theology that allows you to sit here and worship God and still play in your sin. That is a temptation to idolatry. They wanted a physical presence in Israel, and so they engaged in what was contrary to God by developing a God they called Yahweh. We know how this works. In fact, there's a curious verse that uh, Paul brings up in the book of Ephesians that I just want to point out. Jot down Ephesians 5.5. 5. I just want to read it to you. Just jot it down. You can go back to it later on your own time. But listen to it. Ephesians 5.5. 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. That's fascinating. Think about this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, that is related to covetousness. Immorality comes from desire for something you do not possess. That covetousness Paul refers to as idolatry. You desire something God has not granted and you pursue it until you gain it. That is the definition of idolatry. So what do you desire that he has not given that you will even go to sinful lengths to have? Are you tempted to idolatry? What are you willing to sin for to gain? What are you willing to sin to keep? That is idolatry. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. Everyone is tempted for that ki- in that kind of idolatrous way. Covetousness is always present. It's what Eve had in the beginning when she saw the fruit and this would make her independent from God. This would give her the right to decide right and wrong for herself. She would not have to wait on God for pleasure or wisdom. What is that for you? What is it? He's not ordained it. He does not desire it for you, but you want it and you will sin to get it. What is it? Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both, make both God and idol. Are you surprised? Does it surprise you that the super powerful in our world, the most influential people in our culture are actually coming out and falling into sexual sin and immorality? Does it surprise you when you read of another cultural influence leader who's fallen into sexual escapades? Listen, a lust for influence and power and authority can easily and quickly be tied to sensual kinds of pleasures that express that desire to display power and influence in immoral ways. Do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Check what you crave. Check what you crave. And if you want to know what your idols are, they're going to be found in your desires. There's a third temptation that reveals a behavior of unbelief that we need to be reminded of. It's the temptation to immorality in verse 8. Back in 1 Corinthians 10. 
the temptation to immorality, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That is another occasion, believe it or not, in Israel's history, found in the book of Numbers, chapter 25. I'll just refer to a little bit of it for the sake of time, and you can read more about it, but Numbers chapter 25 is this occasion. It's really fascinating. You remember the the occasion of Balaam and his donkey? Everybody remembers that story. We remember the flannel graph, at least, right? (laughs) You remember Balaam? He's, he's called out by Balak, the king, and Balak wants him to pronounce a curse over Israel. And every time Balaam shows up, he pronounces a blessing. Really frustrates Balak. And there's no curse that, was, that God would allow to be put on the people. That's, that's Numbers 24. When you get to Numbers 25, Israel falls into sin. God is protecting them from the external curses from people on the outside, but where do they fall? They fall inwardly, and they fall into immorality. Verse 1, when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So whereas the king, Balak, could not pronounce a curse, he could tempt them with his women. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family, to his family in the sight of Moses. This is brazen, isn't it? In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they're weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Tempted into immorality in connection with idolatry. And that day, Moses says here, 24,000 people fell. Paul refers to it as 23,000. Paul is explicit. In one day, 23,000 people fell. Numbers 25 is likely summing up the whole occasion, saying in all, it was somewhere around 24,000. Idolatry gripped the entire nation. People from the outside couldn't make them fall, but they tripped on the inside because they wanted what they craved and they were tempted to immorality. It is fascinating to me to see how rampant immorality is. Even within the church, the Corinthians were struggling with it. In chapter 6, they viewed immorality, sexual immorality, had no spiritual effect. Immorality is what you engage in. Sexuality is just something you, you do because you're human. So it has no real, it's physical, so there's no spiritual effect. They divorce the two. But what does God think about it? It's a temptation. There's a fourth temptation that Paul mentions in verse 9. It is the temptation to presumption. The temptation to presumption. 
Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them, the Israelites, did and were destroyed by serpents. This is a profound picture. This is a reference to Numbers 21. Just after Israel had been given water from the rock, Numbers chapter 21 in verse 4, from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. You would think they would get the point at some point. It's not, not good to grumble against God's food here. But they keep doing it. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. And you remember, they would look to the serpent, and they would then be healed. It was presumption. It's as if they were commanding God, demanding God to provide in a particular way, in a specific moment, just to see if he's listening, presuming that their complaint would result in his provision, as it had so many times before. Have you ever done that? God, this is what I need, and he meets the need. God, I need this. He meets the need. But you're not satisfied. I want more, presuming as if you could command God to give you what you want, even when those desires are not necessarily what he has ordained. Presumption. Just like the Corinthians going to the idol feasts, presuming that God would protect them and provide for them and sustain them, even while they're participating in the worship of the idols. It's us going into the events of the world and embracing them as if they have no spiritual effect on us of any kind of negative manner and assuming that God will simply be okay because we're a part of the church. We can't be touched. As the Corinthians put Christ to the test, the Israelites put their providing Messiah to the test so we can as well. There's one other temptation that's mentioned here that we'll mention this morning. It is the temptation to grumble. Back in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, the temptation to grumble. We must not, verse 9, put Christ to the test, and we must not, verse 10, grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This goes back to Numbers chapter 14 when they were going to go into the land, and there were some who said, we can't go into the land. They're grumbling against God. The word grumble here is the word gogudzo in Greek. Sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? If you just say it over and over, gogudzo, it sounds like someone's grumbling, mumbling of their breath. It's an onomatopoeic word, so the meaning comes from the sound. Grumble, you hear that grumbling, mumbling. Grumbling is a sign of distrust in God, where you don't believe that what God is asking for is actually possible. God says, go in the land and take it, and they come back and say, we can't take the land. That's too hard. That's too difficult. That's grumbling. You know what happened at that point? 
when they grumbled, God sent what Paul calls here the destroyer, and it killed 600,000 people at once. You ever thought about your grumbling as being that kind of dangerous sin? What, what if, what, how many of us would be here today? How many of us would honestly be here if God treated grumbling the way he did with Israel? I'd been gone a long, long time ago. Long ago, more than likely. We laugh about that, but it's a serious issue, isn't it? The temptation to grumble against God. Do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And look at verse 11, a summary of all of it. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Do you know what that means? We're not waiting for any other age of grace to come. This is it, friends. If you are living now as if another age to come is going to come in which God will tolerate our sin, the end of the ages has come when the Messiah returns. He ushers in his kingdom and then the eternal state. There isn't another opportunity. This is the time to be right before the Lord. The end of the ages has come upon us now. The messianic age is here. There's not another to come. Don't miss these examples. Now, I think when I read these, that there is a temptation to despair also here. When I look at all of these temptations, the evil desires, the idolatry, the immorality, the presumption to the grumble, do you look at that and say, I, I don't know how to get out of that. I don't know how to handle that. I find myself dipping into these and trifling with these kinds of temptations all of the time. What hope is there for us? Well, listen, this is exactly where you need to be. You have to rehearse all of the details of these kinds of temptations so that you can come even to the second facet involved in overcoming these behaviors. You need to remember them and how God treated them so you can come to the second way to overcome them. And I'll finish with this. You have to trust the protection of God from unbelief. You have to trust the protection of God. What effect should the examples of Israel's temptations that revealed patterns of unbelief, what should that have on us? What effect? They need to impact our trust. They need to impact our trust. Who will we trust? When I want something different than what God has ordained, what will I trust? When I crave something that God has said, this is sin, what will I trust? When my, I find myself tempted to grumble against what God has brought, what will I trust? Who will I trust? Me, my desires, my wisdom, will I trust God? Can I just tell you, you and I are not strong enough to overcome our sinful tendencies. They are too strong. They are too prevalent. They come all too often. And we are not strong enough. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad? Doesn't that make you yearn for a Savior? Doesn't it? Well... This is where we find ourselves. So how do you put trust in God in these areas? Can I just suggest two, two things as we finish this up that come from verses 12 and 13? First, 
Here's two ways to pursue a genuine trust in God. Do not trust yourself to remain faithful to God. Do not trust yourself. Christianity is not, it is not a pull yourself up by your own efforts kind of religion. All right, what I need to do is just do better. Try harder. Overcome this. Fight harder against the sin. I want you to fight. I want you to fight hard against sin. I want you to be explicit. But in all of your fighting, don't trust your fighting. You trust God. You trust God. You see it in verse 12? Therefore, here's the response. Let anyone who thinks he stands... Let anyone who thinks he stands, what does that mean? Anyone who thinks that I can overcome this on my own, I can stand before God successfully against idolatry and desire and grumbling, etc. If you think you can stand, take heed, watch out, pay close attention lest you fall. What is he saying? Do not trust yourself. Do not trust yourself to keep yourself. It won't work. If you are telling yourself that you're spiritually immune and you're fine and you're unaffected and yet you see the behaviors of unbelief active in your heart and your life, evil desires, idolatry, immorality, presumption, grumbling, then you should not trust your feelings. Do not trust in yourselves. These are signs that should shove you to turn to Christ. In God's providence, I've recently been meeting with a man who's been, in my estimation, a very faithful pastor for a number of years. And a week ago, two weeks ago today, his wife caught him in adultery. His ministry is over. It's finished. And we find ourselves in a place as a church coming alongside to help, talk to him, And thankfully, he's saying the right things at this point. And one of the things he has said over and over is, I have been listening to myself for too long. I cannot trust what I say to myself anymore. Friends, we all need to do that before the fall comes. Do not trust in what you say to yourself and your feelings. You cannot trust yourself. So then... Who do you trust in? Verse 13, it's the second way you cultivate trust. You trust God's faithfulness to keep you. You trust God's faithfulness to keep you. Do you see it in verse 13? This is so encouraging. No temptation. Of the five temptations that we just listed, none of them has overtaken you in an uncommon way. All of those temptations are common to everyone. Every human being struggles with those temptations. They're not uncommon. They're very common. So what do you do with it? God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. Now, I want to be careful with that. That does not mean that God is not going to allow you to get into something you can't handle on your own. Yes, he will. What he won't do is leave you to yourself. He won't leave you to yourself. You will find yourself in sin that you cannot handle. You will find yourself with desires that you cannot get over on your own. 
but you will not find yourself left there because God is faithful to his people. If he has made a promise to save you, he will keep the promise to save you. Trust his faithfulness with the temptation, not outside of the temptation. He will give you a way to endure it. That is to remain under it successfully, not to be overcome by it, not to be crushed by it. He will help you stand up underneath it successfully. God will do that by his faithfulness, not by your effort. You trust God's faithfulness. When you think that your faith is about to fail, what will you do? When you find yourself overcome by desires, what will you do? You will be tempted to trust yourself, but don't. This is where your trust in Christ actually becomes very practical. Do you actually believe that Jesus died, actually gave up his life to keep you in him? Do you think the Lord gave up his own son to lose you to sin? Trust him. Be confident in Christ. Keep turning back to him. Cultivate faith in Christ. Now, we're going to have more to say about what that looks like in the days to come, but could you even now... Look at yourself and say, do I see myself in any of these behaviors of unbelief? Friend, you can turn from that because you have a Savior who is willing to keep you and save you and protect you. But he will not do that if you're going to try to hold on to them. Let them go and let your desires be met by Christ and the Father. He will save you. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you will help us now. If you are pointing out sin to us, if you're convicting us of sin, we pray that you'll help us to turn from it and to turn from it as if we are turning to you, the one who can actually save and preserve us from that sin. I pray for divine work of grace that you will convince and convict us. We pray that our faith will lead to confident obedience, a life lived in love for Christ, turning away, releasing our grip on idolatrous sin. Help us to live a life that is faithful to you. Help us not to be overconfident about our spiritual condition as if we can keep ourselves. May your grace be profound now in our hearts. You alone will keep us by your promise and by the work of your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.